Welcome back to another episode of Season 2 of Stern Chats. We are honored to be participating in Veterans Week, which runs from November 5th to November 12th. We also celebrate Veterans Week here at Stern. And for a special Veterans Week episode, we are very proud to have with us today Adam Shear, a first-year MBA student and former member of Navy SEAL Team 5. From Stern Chats, on behalf of Frank and myself and all who participate, we want to thank the men and women who serve our country valiantly day in and day out. We extend our warmest and most heartfelt thank you. Yes, thank you for serving our country. We are so proud and honored to speak with Adam Shear today about Veterans Week and his adventures with Navy SEAL Team 5. He's going to tell us about some seemingly impossible physical feats that he had to overcome to operate with his unit, and also about some of the friendships he forged through this experience. I've had a hard time even wrapping my mind around some of the challenges that Adam went through. I mean, how many times have you been dunked in frozen water and then had to start a fire, Frank? Sherry, zero times. I would not sign up for that. That's, <laughs> that sounds really challenging. Sounds a bit difficult. Yes, well, Adam has done all of that and more. So thank you, Adam, for your service, and I can't wait to hear from him. Sherry, what do you think? Should we start the show? Let's start the show. Cue that music. From New York University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Here with today's program are your hosts, Frank Ferricchio and Sherry Holt. Welcome back to Stern Chats and a huge welcome to Adam Shear. It is Veterans Week and we are joined by a former Navy SEAL, a first year MBA and aspiring financier. So aspiring. thank you so much for being here with us, Adam. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. So Adam, we really appreciate you coming in. People are really curious about your life as a Navy SEAL. I mean, on a resume, that's something that really pops. Yeah. Uh, I've had um, a few people at a couple you know, preliminary interviews, provisional interviews, kind of zone in on that and want to like learn about that when I'm trying to actually get information from them about how their industry is. And it's like this weird tango that goes on. So Sometimes it can be a little weird to work around. You, so you look like a normal guy, actually. He just—he's very fit. <laughs> well, he is a normal guy. I—I I, I know. There's no like, you know, there's no like halo or glow. Uh, you just have a cape flapping in the know. wind behind him. You're looking pretty dazzling today. Yeah, backwards hat. <laughs> so the backwards hat is a new thing I'm trying out this week. I'm backwards hat guy for a little bit. I'm going right. to see how it plays out. I like it. Yeah. Well, so for those of us who don't know that much about you other than being a Navy SEAL, can you give us a 20-second intro? Sure. I went to Binghamton University upstate, I majored in biology. The intent was to go to medical school, decided that wasn't wasn't for me. Started looking into other opportunities, wanted a, a life that was you know exciting, and I got to travel a lot. And I never left the country at, at that point in my life when I was 22. So looked into, I figured, you know, why not dive, you know, like, excuse the pun, why not dive into the deep end of the pool and, uh, you know, try something that's supposed to be supposedly the hardest training and see how that plays out. And it uh, worked out in my favor. I went to officer candidate school in Newport, Rhode Island, which is just after I graduated undergrad in, in May 2008. And then three months later, flew out to San Diego for 
basic underwater demolition school, SEAL school. Yeah, so biology to Navy SEAL, that's a straight line for sure. It's a straight line path. <laughs> yeah, then that, bio, that biology has come in handy every day now that I'm taking business classes. Yeah, what, what, kind, of, what kind of biology stuff did you get into? It was evolutionary biology specifically. Oh, that's so, actually kind of cool. Yeah. That, 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 kind of, that can help you understand how like people function and like make decisions, I guess. Yeah, no, it, it definitely did. I was always just, I was really into dinosaurs as a kid, so that's actually the, like the genesis of that. Oh, wow. Yeah. You uh, should make a trip to the Galapagos. There's no dinosaurs in the Galapagos. Well, no, not for the dinosaurs, but for evolution. Um, oh, Darwin. Darwin. Yeah. yeah, gotcha. No, that makes sense. I'm so sorry. Well, we're really like you know there's, missing. No, you know there's no dinosaurs. I just want to establish that as a baseline. Wait, no, dinosaurs are real. They're not. Only cartoon dinosaurs are real right now. Everything else is extinct many, many years ago. Good to know. I'm yeah. gonna start that trek here at Stern to the Galapagos. <laughs> That's gonna be my oh, contribution cool. to the school. There you go. Well, I, I will think... be first on your list. Well, that actually evolutionary biology is a useful thing to study. It wasn't like a weird biology, like narwhal-specific biology or something. Yeah, no, it was. Uh, it was. It was interesting. I also took like some like microbiology and cell biology classes too, which were very difficult. But uh, yeah, I had to. I had to explain that one later on in my interviews at some for some banks. They were like, "Hey, why is your GPA so low?" More or less, that's what they said. And I was like, uh, "All right, uh, it's but, the amoebas. But, They're but, not interesting." Yeah, but yeah. Bes- besides just telling you I'm not smart enough to get a three nine or a four zero, I'll just tell you that you know I uh, I forget what I said I think I said like I took more advanced courses than necessary because I was just in the subject but still uh, I mean that's cool that you can you can be so centered because you know Navy SEAL is the top of like the military tactical food chain I mean it's it's a it's almost like a brand that everyone in America understands you hear Navy SEAL and you it, it puts a picture in your head and you think like hero you think like super athlete you think I don't know you think of like Captain America well I think part of the reason is that you know, part of the program is you can go from being like a, a civilian just like walking on the street to signing a contract with the Navy saying, hey, as long as you pass these minimum physical standards, you're guaranteed to go out to San Diego and go through the training. That doesn't guarantee that you'll make, you know, by any means make it or anything, but it's, you can try you, it. there's like a rags to riches like portion of the community that like really inspires people. I mean, that kind of is basically what happened to me. I didn't have any family that served in the military and I wasn't really interested in it at all growing up. And in fact, the way I got uh, interested in the community specifically is pretty funny. I was doing an internship in between my junior and senior year on crow behavior, as in like caw caw like birds, like the black bird. <laughs> I, I was wait, I was waking up at five thirty. Wait, hold on, man. I just wanted you to know, like that's that's boring. Oh yeah, so that's <laughs> hence why I started looking into other opportunities, right? I mean, <laughs> like that—that's not cool, man. I was, I was, I was biology was your downfall. <laughs> yeah, right. I just imagine Adam with a notebook, just drawing crows <laughs> and seeing what they're up to. So, Sorry, man. Go ahead. No, I mean, I woke up at like like five thirty in the morning or something. I'm gonna drive to uh, to Cornell or Ithaca, really, from Binghamton. And these crows were, it was part of a professor's ongoing, like, like five or six year study or whatever, like, uh, monitoring the flight patterns and things like that. I would, like, get, get binoculars and, like, pull over the side of the road and, like, look at, like, the tag on the, this, on the wing of this bird. And I'd mark down where it was. And I did that for an entire summer. And by the end of the summer, I was just like, oh, I need to look into other things. And, and my, I, I was playing, you're like, I was playing, I was actually kind of, kind of drunk and playing Call of Duty. And I was 21 at the time, so it was, it was it was legal. I was kind of drunk and playing Call of Duty, and my friend just turns to me and he's like, "Dude, did you know that Navy SEALs don't have a social security number? They get it erased." And I was like, "Wow, that sounds awesome! Like super <laughs> super into that that idea." That, 
Not at all true, by the way. Like, I definitely have one. Definitely been paying my taxes. Who like told a good that citizen. kid? Yeah. Wait, does the so Navy... start on a lie. Does the Navy know that Call of Duty is their primary recruitment tool? Oh, absolutely. I think they, yeah, no, I think they picked up on that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. 100%. Especially for yeah. 21-year-olds who have oh, just yeah. been caught birdwatching. Well, oh, that shows you the mindset of a 21-year-old. I mean, obviously, you probably had a lot of the other qualities, like, laying in you, like, heavy patriotism... You know what I mean? Like a courageous desire, like that stuff. But the trigger was you're like, man, no social security number. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, it was the straw that broke the camel's back that the floodgates opened, right? Oh, yeah. my God. It sounds like some secret squirrel stuff. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So um, what your friend did is, is he lied to you. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I bought it hook, line, and sinker. All it sounded exciting. He yeah. should take professional responsibility. Yeah. What he did was not okay. <laughs> but it did have a kind of good result because mm-hmm. now we have an American hero like Adam. We do indeed. Who is a Navy SEAL. I am the classic civilian in that I, first of all, hadn't really even met anybody in the military prior to school, mm-hmm. let alone know anything about what you do. So what is the job description of a Navy SEAL? So there's like major branches of the military, right? And each branch now has their own special forces unit. In the case of the Army, they actually have two different uh, special forces units. But the one for the Navy is the SEAL teams. What it started out as was kind of, we'll call it a metamorphosis from the old UDT, underwater demolition teams, that were active doing just like maritime water operations in Vietnam it kind of morphed over time into, like, land operations as, uh, you know, Operation During Freedom and Operation Iraqi Freedom kind of kicked off in 2001, 2003. So the majority of my training actually in the in, in my career and then even the past 20 years has been land-focused because that's just been where all the conflicts are. I mean, we do definitely do a lot of, you know, waterborne maritime training. But in terms of the, you know, the focus and um, where we spend a lot of money in preparing for specific deployments, those deployments are going to be, you know, a ter- in a terrestrial environment like Afghanistan or Iraq or a place like that. So Terrestrial is just a fun way of saying land. I was just yeah. about to say, like, you think of, like, extraterrestrials. Like, I, I envision you training on Mars or something. Like, you know, saying terrestrials just sounds so much cooler than, like, land-based. Know. You know what I mean? It's just got, like, a better ring to it. Well, Sherry, if you've never met a Navy SEAL before, like, this is... This is what one looks like. I know. I should be taller, better looking, lot, lots of things. I don't know, things. man. I don't know, just, man. You're doing okay. So, sorry about the stigma and I'm ruining it. What's with it. you in the classic undersell? You know? <laughs> I just think self-deprecating humor is just like, I think it's awesome and super funny. Whenever I hear comedians do it or like go to comedy shows here locally and they start making fun of themselves, it's just yeah. like, the, I think it's the funniest thing ever. So your, your training is, is really what got you hooked on this line of work and it's called the Navy SEAL BUDS Training Program. So what's BUDS all about? So it takes place in San Diego. You join up with a class, and the class sizes vary. There's typically about maybe 20 officers to start, and, you know, rough ballpark, you know, 220, 240 uh, enlisted members is what your class begins with. And you go through three phases. The first phase is called, it's a really funny name, it's called basic conditioning, I believe. Yeah, there's nothing, there's nothing basic about it. it. There's an indoc period, an indoctrination period, actually a few weeks before that begins, where you like learn how to do the O course. You learn how to do a lot of the things you actually have to already know when you show up, like how to do a, a combat side stroke, which what's is like a, a what's swimming a technique. What's O course? Oh, o- obstacle course. Oh, got it. Okay. So you learn how to like do like the specific obstacles, maybe not one after another, but there's like a, it's kind of very technique based, but. You go through that for a few weeks, so you basically can, you know, safely do the the what they call evolutions, which are just like the training uh, events, you know, like a like a run or a swim or, or an obstacle course. It's tra- like launch event. week. It's like launch week for yeah, Navy SEALs. It, exactly, but it, la- it lasts like yeah, right. It, it lasts, lets you wade in slowly. <laughs> it lasts like like three weeks. So 
after that, then you start basic conditioning. And like I said, there's nothing basic about it. It's uh, it, it's you know very intense. And the program's always changing slightly. But right now, I believe it's seven weeks long. And the fourth week is, maybe it's the third week, the third week is Hell Week, which is like kind of the most famous portion of the training. You start Sunday night and you finish Friday morning. And you get two two-hour naps, one on Wednesday afternoon, one on Thursday afternoon. And they just keep you up the entire time. And you just you run around like a lot. Like a lot, a lot. Like a whole week? Yeah. Do you sleep at all? So those two naps you get. But here's the thing. Whoa, 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 whoa. Nap? I mean. No, that's not good enough, man. I need like eight (laughs) hours. Uh, What are you talking about? I'll I'll tell you right now, the nap doesn't do you any good. It actually, people quit when they wake up from the nap, usually on the first one, because you're sleeping in a tent and you're like very, it's nice and warm and kind of cozy. And you're obviously extremely tired. Some guys actually can't sleep. It's weird. Like they're, they're just like. They try, but they can't. And then people who do, they fall asleep, like, in a very deep sleep. And then after two hours, the instructors come in, and they light off a blowhorn, and you have to go into the ocean immediately and get wet. And it's the most demoralizing thing ever. Like, it's really bad. So the first nap, I purposely stayed up and, and didn't sleep. I stayed up and stretched, and some of the older guys uh, who, like, help me out, they kind of, they're past Hell Week, but they're still in the program. They kind of help out, and they brought me some candy bars and stuff. Wait, but... wait, 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 wait. So there's three phases, and the last week, Hell Week, you don't sleep at all? So this is still in the first phase. What? Yeah, yeah, Hell Week is in the is in the first phase. Oh, this so, is this is this yeah. is rough. I'm literally getting sleepy because like I I sort of want to like store up all my sleep in anticipation for like a Hell Week that is never coming. You're like having in my life. You're like having sympathetic. <laughs> like feel like there's there's no That's risk nuts. of you like having to go be a Navy SEAL after this. Ugh. You're just you're empathizing really hard right now. I can see it, you, like, kind of, like, tightening thank up. Thank you for your service. Thank it, you it, for your service, it, it's, Adam. But it, it's not as bad as it sounds because when you're constantly moving, it's so much easier to stay awake. Like, it, it's really hard to fall asleep when you're running. I mean, actually, that, that actually happens later on, but, like, to some people, but it's really know. it's really hard to do. Like, do, meals were the hardest thing. Like, when you because you eat four meals a day, you had to, like, constantly put calories in or else, like, how could you, you know, keep moving, right? That's the hardest time to stay awake is, like, in your... You know, while you're eating. And if you fall asleep, like, while you're eating, the instructors are getting super pissed and all that kind of stuff. But Fall asleep yeah. while you're eating? Yeah. That is... I, I mean, the visual is kind of weird, too. I'm thinking, like, face planting in yeah. your soup. I guess you don't eat soup. So then... <laughs> so, <laughs> seal training. So after Hell Week, I mean, my class started with... It was a large class to begin with. It was, like, 270 total, and we had 75, which is actually a huge class to finish Hell Week. That's pretty substantial yeah. attrition wow. rate. What is the typical so, but, but then, attrition rate? Um, after first phase, so yeah, after yeah, Hell Week, yeah. I think it's like I want to say twenty percent make it through, and then even with that in that twenty percent, there's other things and we'll talk about it in a little bit that you know weed people out. So like you're not done after Hell Week by any means. It is a big a big hurdle though. Yeah, no, sure it's, I, it's definitely a big hurdle. It's the biggest hurdle. So I mean, let's just figure that out. seventy five divided by two seventy five. Carry the one. It's twenty seven percent. That's twenty seven percent, Sherry. He pulled his iPhone out. No, <laughs> everybody God. listening. Frank, Frank's not a savant, all right. Oh my uh, gosh, I'm really glad oh, that you blew his cover. I was, gonna, I was gonna like, let him get away with that. You know, I wanted. It's a radio show. There are some benefits to that. Like one con <laughs> is that we can't see. You can't see us. But one benefit is like, yeah, I mean, I've got notes in front of me, and I've got a calculator. You can let me have it, Adam. All You're the, a Navy SEAL, the, man. I need this one. All the Quan hedge funds are now going to be uh, crossing your name off the list. Yeah. <laughs> Fooey. Yeah. So, okay, so the training, you're you're running around, you're yep. in water, you're doing O courses. See, I got the lingo down. You got it. You know, w- what is the type of training where you're, like, submerged in water? Yeah, so that's... 
so I'll just back up a little bit. After Hell Weekends, there's like three weeks left of first phase of basic conditioning. And the first, one of those, the first of those three weeks is kind of like a, it's called a walk week where you're allowed to wear, you're allowed to wear sneakers and you don't do that much physical activity for like three or four days, kind of recover. And then you do some like classroom stuff and then it pretty much ends. The next phase is called, I forget the specific name, but it's, we just call it dive phase, second phase. And there's a specific evolution that's really difficult, and a lot of people end up not making it through the program because of that. I mean, the attrition rate is not as much as for Hell Week, but it's pretty significant. And I almost didn't make it through the program on this one uh, evolution. It's called pool comprehension. So, Again, another name that sounds pretty, oh, pretty baseline. It's so fun. innocent, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, no oh, man. It's comprehension. Tough. Treading, sounds like treading water. Diving. Diving. Belly flops. Yeah. Kicks holding on to the wall. So there is is something called the tread, which you do before pool comp. And that's just you have the twin 80 like air tanks, which are actually technically neutral when you put them in water. So they don't weigh that much. And you you have like a weight belt on of like, I think it's like 12 pounds or something. And you have to tread with your hands. Like your head can go below the water. And there's actually a technique to do it. So it's easier. But your hands have to stay above for like two minutes with the tanks on. Oh, it's like water polo. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, water polo players did well in that. Oh, phase. they do. They did super well. Yeah, and I did not. I mean, it took a lot for me. I actually had to borrow extra large fins to pass. Wow. Yeah, like, I couldn't. I couldn't really do it. I think I, the first time I tried it, I failed with the large fins, and then I was like, someone like told me like, hey, just take these extra large fins. It'll it'll be a lot better, and it was. So pool comprehension for me, I had already been what's called performance rolled earlier in in second phase. So my second time through. Uh, and you only get performance role if the instructors like you. It's basically like you fail a test and you are now going to wait till the next class is there, which is maybe like six, seven weeks, till the next cl- the next class behind you is at that point, then you join up with that class. So that's kind of how I know a lot of people too in the community is like I got rolled I got rolled medically for something else too. That's the you whole get pushed back. Yeah, cool. and you're thinking I should have just kept on scribbling about crows, probably. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Would have been a better life. So my second time through, I was you get four tries each time. I had failed the first three, and it's it's very difficult to do. So I'm on the side of the pool. I'm about to enter again. It's my fourth final try. I'd already been, like, performance rolled previously. And so I had this moment where I said to myself, like, you need to absolutely pass this or, or, or like, you're, you're just, you're, you're done. Like, you're going to end up getting um, sent to the, the, you know, the, the great big blue Navy, and they'll, like, you know, distribute you and give you, like, a different job. They'll give you a hand job mop. Yeah, exactly. Do something else. Pretty much, yeah. Like, you don't really have a say in what you do. So, but, I mean, what's actual skill were you trying to achieve during... Like, during pool comp? Yeah. So y- you enter the water with, like, uh, open-circuit air tanks in your back, like the, the scuba tanks you've seen, like, you know, any, anyone use. And there's, like, a double hose regulator, which is... It's very hard to find them nowadays, but it's kind of, like, old school. They don't really use them anymore. But the basic premise is there's a mouthpiece and two air hoses that go around the side of your head back to the tanks. One is for inhale, one is for exhale. And the instructors basically, it gets, the test lasts about 20 minutes and it gets harder and harder, but they, they you just crawl back and forth on the bottom of, a, of the pool, I think it's like 10 feet of water, like on your hands and knees, and they just hit you, it's called like a, like a surf hit, but they just hit you, rip the hose out of your mouth, and they'll tie it in knots. And you have to like, there's a very specific procedure about how you go about fixing it. And if you don't like adhere to the specific procedures, if you like skip one single step, like you, you fail. So, like, you have to do everything perfectly. And, like, what it teaches you really is, like, like how to think methodically and calmly under pressure. And the pressure is, of course, like, you're, you're, now you're holding your breath and figuring this out. Right? Yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna the drown. pressure yeah. is your life. I mean, that's deep enough to where, like... You, you can get, yeah, like a pulmonary um, embolism from that. Absolutely. Yeah. So oh what, what stop gaps do they have in place 
for pulling people out if they can't do it, though. It's kind of hard to explain, but, like, if, when you think you don't have enough air, you actually have, like, probably 30 more seconds until you actually pass out. So, like, if, if the student starts to panic, the instructor will actually, like, tackle that. If they're going to bolt to the surface, they technically they have um, compressed air in their lungs. They're going to, like, they're going to get an AGE, arterial gas embolism. So to prevent that, the instructor, if you try to bolt, like, if you, like, s- put your feet on the ground at any point, like, because you're, you're, you're always in, like, your hands and knees the entire time, they'll, like, not, they'll, like, stop you from, from, like, pushing up to the top of the surface to, like, push you back down. And then they'll punch you in the stomach to get all the air out because they're preventing you from getting an AGE. That's, like, on a safety side. Like, that doesn't really... That, did, that didn't honestly happen to anybody That doesn't feel like them helping. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Like, I know that they're scientifically they're helping, yeah. but it doesn't feel like it. It's like So you're, like, you're about <laughs> to quit, and then you get punched in the stomach. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that, you know, t- like... I'm going to save you, and then I beat you and hold you down. <laughs> That's actually called a nonverbal DOR when that happens. Like, if, you, if that happens to someone... DOR means... Drop on request. Oh, so you're, you're, cu- so, you're cutting so like, from the program. If that happens, like, it's considered you panicked and you failed, and they'll, they'll just cut you right there. Wow. So as a Navy SEAL, panicking is not a skill that you're allowed to have. No, it's not. I actually use the word to describe something that happened later on, like, much further down the line in the training, like, more advanced dive training. I use the word panic to describe something that happened when I thought my gear was um was like broken and an older guy said to me he's like let me tell you something sir never use that word ever again and i was like got it wow and so yeah. if there's a four-letter file, word in the navy it is away. panic wait I don't... five that's well five i know but like a four-letter i i'm glad we clarified that because for a second i thought you didn't know that panic was five letters adam wait, too can was you like, hand me the calculator dude that's five <laughs> letters maybe a- you should use the calculator I sherry see. i get it though four letter word <laughs> like a dirty word those yeah. hedge funds just turn this podcast off completely now they're not listening anymore no 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 okay so can you tell us like t- take us like uh play by play for like your final attempt here as they as you're like basically near drowning so you you go to the edge of the pool i remember thinking like if i don't pass this like that, I know that that's it. I'm going to get you know given some other some other job in the Navy that I you know don't want to do, and I'll have to do that for whatever four years, and then I'll then I'll get out, and then I'll know. I didn't have like a second plan. I didn't you know it wasn't like oh I'm going to go to business school in in four years or six years. That wasn't on the radar. No, not I mean I knew I didn't want to make the Navy my my career. I didn't want to do 20 years because I um you know I, I wanted to be a, like a diverse person in my experiences in life. I guess I've always wanted that. So I, but I remember like I actually had this this thought to myself like. And I had heard this quote previously. It was, and it's it's kind of harsh. I think I've said this to a few times around school, and people look at me a little sideways. But I really like it. It's sometimes your best isn't good enough. Sometimes you must do what is required. And what that kind of puts in your head is like, sometimes there's like there's standards to be met, and, and you have to meet them. And sometimes that requires you to th- to do something or become someone that you didn't think you ever could be. It's kind of weird to explain, right? But. I remember thinking that, and then I entered the water, and the test was going pretty well, and I got what's called the whammy knot, which is one—that's how the test ends, is they, they tie a knot that cannot be untied, and there's a procedure to go through once you once you recognize that, and then you finish the test. And I remember getting up out of the water, and the instructor, who's still in active duty, he was like, so I think you did, and I was just like—I just was silent, and I didn't, like, know—I didn't have the words. I was just like— I think I did okay, but um, if you tell me right now that I just failed, even after giving me the whammy now, because sometimes it does happen where, like, you get to that point, but, like, the last thing you do on your way up, you screw screw up something small and they can fail you. And he's like, yeah, you're good. Get out of the pool. And I was just like, yes. Great pressure was relieved. (laughs) And then, so that's second phase. Is that the highest praise you received all, like, during training? I mean, yeah. 
For the most part, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, so I have heard, I have heard, like during this pool training specifically. I mean, there's so many parts of Navy SEAL training. We couldn't possibly get into every facet of it. I mean, it's it just, it a lot of it just sounds so extreme. But I've heard that people will actually pass out in the water mm-hmm. and get revived by instructors. I mean, they, they've caught that. Some of the documentaries have that on video. Um, my really good buddy Tom, that happened to him both times actually. Um, that he tried the 50 meter underwater swim. And that's when you basically, that happens, that happens actually in first phase. You jump in the water, you do a front flip, and then and you do the front flip because it, you're not supposed to push off the wall. So you do a front flip, and then you start swimming. You can get to the other end of the 25, and then, then you're of the pool, then 25-meter pool. Then you're allowed to push off and then come back the opposite way. And so it ends up being a 50-meter underwater swim and on one breath hold. Some guys pass out during that. But there's an, there's an instructor following you the whole time. So if that happens, he immediately grabs you and brings you up. And I mean, That's a long way to go underwater on one breath. That's a little longer than half a football field. How, how long does that take? I want to say like 40 seconds maybe. I So when I was training for that, I only did 25 meters. I did like repeats. I do like 25 meters underwater, you know, at the YMCA pool and stuff when I was uh, in, in, uh, in college. And then I would like wait like, you know, 20 seconds and then do another one. But I, ne- I never actually did the full 50 until I was in training. And I had read, like, you don't really need to. And it's actually pretty dangerous to, to do that stuff, like, alone. So. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, if I anyone's mean, listening, don't do that. Don't do yourself. any of this. All of this, they're attended yeah, by professionals. You know yeah. what I mean? They've got it. They, they, how, how long have Navy SEALs existed? Uh, 1962. Yes, they, they, they know exactly what they're doing. You know, this is not for you to try at home, for sure. And then just to wrap up the, the, the buds thing, um, and then third phase is you go out to this island that the Navy owns, like 90% of it. It's like uh, maybe 40, mi- 40 miles west of uh, San Diego. It's called San Clemente Island, and you do uh, land warfare training there. And that's basically where you shoot guns for the first time in the, in the training. My first time shooting a gun was in the Navy, so, you know, and they said, they were like, oh, that means you're a blank slate and, like, you, you don't have any bad habits. But I'll tell you right now, the guys who grew up in the South, they were way better. They were good when they got there, and then they were really good when they left. Yeah. And to this day, like, they're still, like, the best shots. When I hear a team guy with a Southern accent, I'm always like, this dude's a good shot. Yeah, like, I, just, I just know it. Like This boy can shoot. Yeah. 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 But, I mean, you, you did all of the skills, some of which sound totally ridiculous, and you're pushing your body to the extreme, and you became, you got your, your pin, you became a Navy SEAL. How do you even celebrate an accomplishment like that? I mean, do you just sleep for a long, long time? Drink a lot. You drink a lot. <laughs> Are there some bars on the Of water. Of water? Of water. Because you need to rehydrate. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay, well, uh, I, first of all, that's nuts. And we're like, I'm like, again, sympathetically proud of you for doing any of that stuff, but... Now that you're a Navy SEAL, what's the significance of being a Navy SEAL to you? You know, when does it get real for you? Um, I would say, for me, there was a buddy of mine, Dave Warson, who, he was assigned to SEAL Team 3, I was assigned to SEAL Team 5. We graduated um, one class apart, but we spent a bunch of time in, in the same classes during BUDS and SQT, which is like the, the follow-on school, SEAL qualification training. It's a follow-on school. When he was killed in Afghanistan... His, his helicopter was uh, shot down by an RPG, and that was, like, right before, I think it was, like, maybe five, like six months before I deployed, and went out to his uh, his funeral in Wisconsin, met his family and stuff, and, uh, you know, it was, it, was, it was difficult, but it didn't really occur until, like, later on that deployment when, like, I was going through old photos on my computer, and I saw one of him and myself. We were, we were like, being submerged in this river in Alaska during, like, the, the cold weather training, in Kodiak, Alaska, and there's like him, myself, and like four other guys, and I just forgot I even had that photo. I, I, I don't think I even remembered like it being taken or anything. 
And I just like saw him like there and I was like, dude, he's not even alive anymore. And that just, that was kind of weird, you know? I mean, and Dave and I weren't like super close, but again, I mean, like I met his family and stuff and it all occurs like after the fact too, when you find out like, oh, like he really enjoyed this growing up or like he had this many brothers and sisters because you, you develop this like work relationship and you get like, a, you get some insight into like the personal lives of guys, but like for for myself and Dave, like, I didn't find out a lot about him until after he's already gone. And I kind of, like, made me regret, like, maybe I should have asked him more about his personal life. The other, like, 99% of his life besides, like, the 1% that I see, you know, um, at work, more or less. So I mean, you went through some pretty extreme stuff with Dave in that cold weather training, I assume. Yeah, that, that was part of what's called the rewarming drill. So you uh, you get submerged in that river. And for us, it was April. We were in... Um, in, in, in Kodiak, Alaska, and for, I mean, they, they do that training, like, year-round, so, like, they'll break the ice and, like, put guys in it if it's, like, February or January and December and stuff, and you, the idea is you get out, and then you have to start a fire in a tent with your buddy, and he was actually my, like, my buddy for that, and so we got in a tent together, and then, uh, like, your, your hands, like, aren't working, so you have to, like, work together to start, like, a small fire and, and like, warm up, and it's, it's actually kind of funny. Everyone's, like, laughing during it, because... Because you're just so sick of being, like, miserable that it just becomes funny that, once again, like, you are miserable. And it's one of those things, like, you know, do you ever make it? Like, nah, not really. There's always just something terrible waiting for you around the corner. Yeah. You know? But yeah. but you're fa- you get close to people because you're facing that together. Yeah. Extreme events together. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, our heart goes out to, like, Dave Warson and his family, obviously, a great American hero. And that's very sad. And yeah. I, I do... I, I mean, sure. I can't even imagine what that would be like to to know someone so like intimately as a work relationship, and then they're not there anymore. Yeah, I mean, I I can imagine. You know, once the dust settles from all of the training and all of the physical obstacles that they put you through, mm-hmm. you know, is is there sort of a moment of clarity afterwards where you sort of take a look at, you know, the men and women standing around you and say like, oh, like these. These are my brothers. These are my sisters. You know, we're, we're going through this together. Yeah. One nice thing about the community, too, is there's a lot of, like, trips that you take, like, training trips. But they'll, they'll take you outside of San Diego. And with budget shrinking, that's actually kind of gone away. Um, a lot of the training is now, like, done done locally just, you know, to save money and stuff like that. But when you do those those trips, like, it's what they are really are shared experiences. And I think a lot of, like, my classmates are going to see that, too. When they, when they go on treks with, with students, when you do, like, uh, ski trips and other such things, if you go away to the Poconos for a weekend, it's shared experiences yeah, that, bond that really bond people. Oh, it, sure. It's not going to be your your five, ten-minute conversations before and after a class that are going to make the lasting difference between meeting someone and knowing someone that you're going to th- think about and keep in contact with for, for the rest of your life. And it's going to change you and that you're going to change them. Like, that's yeah. the, that stuff only occurs, like, you know, away and... It, it takes time and, and uh, yeah. you got to strip away, like, some of that uh, facade you have at your workplace. Yeah. I mean, sometimes, being, being in business school, you have a little, little bit of a workplace facade. Cause it's, it can be a little bit of a professional environment sometimes. Yeah, so is that sort of part of the ethos of the training as well? I mean, you're obviously pushing yourself to the limit, but mm-hmm. in the process, they are bonding you as a group. Is that... Was that some of the thought behind it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just a byproduct of uh, of realizing that what you perceive as as a an impossible task, you know, through teamwork can really be done. I almost feel like sometimes, like if you have a group of five people and each brings a certain amount of energy, whatever that number would be, if you can quantify that into a problem, what the amount you can do, like as a as a group, like that total number, 
is not like a sum of all the parts. There's actually like a, a weird delta left over. And where does that come from, right? But for some reason, like I, I've seen it, like five people who are unremarkable in like in every you know measurable aspect, just be able to do something that you know all of them like by themselves didn't think they could do. Even it's pretty like pretty powerful. It's hard to describe unless you've seen it yourself. You mean like five people, five well-trained people that care about each other working together? Yeah, exactly. It just has a multiplying effect. Yeah. That's yeah. a life lesson. That's a life, life lesson. Life lesson number one from Adam Shear. Life lesson from a Navy SEAL. Wow. And if study group nine of Black One's listening to this, <laughs> it's going to be a great year, guys. So what happens to your life outside of training? Yeah, so yeah, you that. just learned all these skills. I mean, you had to find like the the deep primal parts of yourself to like survive this thing, and now you're back out in the world. I mean, you like weekends. I mean, you have to exist in regular society still. Yeah, it can be difficult to hold lasting personal relationships. You know, a lot of jobs in the military when you're home, you know, you're home more or less um, in that whatever wherever you're stationed. You know, you're there uh, pretty often, but. Like I mentioned about our training trips, they would occur on a pretty frequent basis, and that takes you out of town. And so sometimes it feels like you're deployed, um, or at least like your significant other will feel like you're deployed even when you're not, and you're not outside the country. So that that uh, that makes it really difficult to hold like a you know lasting you know intimate relationship with someone. Do you find it hard to relate to people after? I mean, I mean, Sherry, I'm thinking that all of these events, like the pool training, right? I mean, he fails three times. Uh, He's literally underwater. He could possibly drown. I mean, that's stressful. And you have this practice of going through stressful events. It's got to make things out in town, like, not seem as important. You know, is it hard to relate to people? Yeah, guys can have issues with that. You know, um, their, um, their significant other could come come home and say, I had the worst day ever. You know, I had this flat tire, and I tried to get AAA on the line, and I wasn't able to do so, so I had to change it myself. And the whole time, like, unfortunately, you know, you're thinking, like, that's not really a problem. You mean the- you, you were never in any, like, mortal danger everything was going to be fine. You know, if you have kids, like our kids were fine at that moment. Like, is that really a problem? And it can be difficult to, you know, sympathize, empathize with people. I've I've definitely noticed that. I've taken a few like personality tests and I scored like super low, like pathetically low on, on the empathy scale. And I don't really know how to fix that. I'm not sure if it can be fixed. We spoke a little bit about that before, Frank, but basically the, um, the inoculation to stress, yeah, to stress and and to to empathy that you get part of being you know in the community, it's it's difficult. I mean, like D- Dave's death really shook me up, but then I had closer friends that died later on, and it 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 got like it got easier every time, and it just I recognize that, but like I can't you know produce feelings that just aren't there. It's really weird how it works out. It, I mean, we, yeah, it sounds we, like a part of you sort of missing. I, so I, I do. I have another podcast I do with a psychologist. Actually, uh, Dr. Jessica Larson does great research on PTSD. And I mean, lack of empathy is actually a pretty hallmark trait. It's almost like you've you've like worked that part of your brain. It's almost like you've overworked it. So now to get excited or aroused about anything just yep. takes so much like input. Mm-hmm. And that and that's. It's it's weird to hear you talk about it because it's almost like you know that it isn't average. You know that it yeah. isn't the baseline. Like you'd like to be more empathetic, you'd like to be more sympathetic, but it's hard it's hard to find the feelings at the same level that other people have. Right. I think guys end up, at least what I've noticed uh, in the community, um, you know, similar personalities like this, they end up um, storing all their all their their empathy and their um, and their sympathy for their significant others. Like I I, I feel like. Seals are very protective of their families and their children. Like, 
I mean, obviously everybody is, but from, just from what I've seen, I mean, they'll, you know, ruin their own personal finances to put their kids through college and they'll stay in the teams longer and go through multiple deployments to like save up enough money to, you know, put their children through the dream school they want to go to or, and things like that. I've, I've just noticed that over time. And maybe it's just because my exposure to your average American household maybe hasn't been as much as other people, but I, I've, I've been, I've always been really impressed with that aspect of the community. Well, it seems like there's a feeling of necessity for moving forward. Mm -hmm. It's a, you know, fight or flight and they just fight. And it sort of goes back to what you were saying before, that you just need to do what is required and, and march forward. Is that sort of a, a thought process that you took after leaving the, the Navy SEAL? Yeah, I mean, my decision to, like, to separate and everything was more based on I reached a point in my career where I was no longer like quote unquote operational. I was going to be essentially riding a desk. I used to the joke I used to make was this is it, my life will turn into office space with uniforms. And so <laughs> the printer jams and, and, yeah and so yeah. It, TPS reports. Yeah, I mean yeah. If, it, if it's going to be that then uh, it, that's just it's not something that you know, interested me. I mean, th there's a reason the career pipeline for SEAL officers exists, you know, as it does. It's just, um, for me personally, uh, it wasn't something I was interested in. So just looked into other opportunities and everything. But, you know, when I was uh, studying for the GMAT, I did not do nearly as well that I, as I thought I would do in the beginning. And I ended up actually having to study on my, for it on my last deployment. And so what that... On mission, like doing missions with the SEALs. You so were, I had to take some time out and study for the GMAT? Yeah, I was like mission planning for like a few hours. And then like when it t came time to like go to bed, I would like spend like two hours doing like Veritas prep and, and stuff like that. Well, I just want people to know, Sherry, like, yeah, I'm, I don't know if you're like thinking back to your GMAT studying story. Nobody else has got any excuses <laughs> at this point. No one. No one. So like... If I had not put that time in necessarily to, you know, get the score that I wanted to get and everything, I could have probably said, like, you know, hey, I did my best, right? Like, I was doing my job, which is more important at the time, so I'm getting paid to do. And I, whatever time I had left over, you know, I was, you know, putting into my time and energy into the, the test. But what was required is that I get, in my mind, like a certain score, and I was going to do what was necessary to, you know, to get that score. So Yeah, and, you know, I think that kind of points to the fact that some of these skills that you learn, not necessarily the specific tasks like rewarming or the pool training, but that mindset that you have sounds like it translates perfectly into business, right? You're talking about what is required or right. just like, you know, I'm going to dig deep and I'm going to... I'm going to work a little harder. I'm going to find it in myself to, like, produce what needs to be produced. I mean, yeah. I think that's a real benefit to anybody that has Adam on their team. Or finding that team that brings, you know, 110% of themselves, and so you're left with that delta that goes above and beyond what's required. Yeah, and you could, you could spend that extra percentage on whatever you want. Pizza. Pizza, do a puzzle, <laughs> or you can make money. <laughs> that's for you oh, to yeah. decide if, as a manager. <laughs> what are you going to do with that extra 10% that everyone's given you? So your job as a Navy SEAL, I mean, I know it's, I know it's definitely like a different kind of job. And it's mm -hmm. definitely like a stressful job. And, um, I mean, people really appreciate the guys that go out in there and do that stuff for our country. Do you think there's any civilian equivalent to the style of, like, stress and tasks that you have to do? You know, um, a lot of SEALs, when they get out, my understanding is they get drawn to, like, high-risk jobs. So... The two that come come to mind for me is like high risk meaning meaning traders maybe like in finance things like that. I know some guys that have that have gotten into that. Talking, I mean, I know that's not like a uh, an emerging industry anymore, but in the past like decade, like a lot of guys have gravitated towards that, and I think it's because maybe the little bit of the the rush you get from you know making significant trades and more or less betting you know large pools of money. So that like maybe provides them some of the excitement that they you know they've always enjoyed about the teams. And the other side of it too is like I think we're very free thinkers, very autonomous and guys are drawn towards their own ventures of like entrepreneurship and things like that. 
So I have a bunch of friends that are in business school right now, and if it's not finance that they're working towards, it's more or less like their own, their own projects and, and uh, their, their own startups and things like that. So I think guys t- try to bring that innovative mentality over to you know the civilian side. So the startup environment is diametrically opposite from what you are experiencing with the SEALs. What has been your initial impressions of coming back to school and integrating into this community? Uh, my first impression was that, you know, it, it, what's the nice thing about the, the, the teams, the SEAL teams, is that when you showed up to a platoon, everybody just spent the same year and a half doing more or less the same thing. And there's so many funny stories and jokes that come up about it that you can, you have this, this bank of, uh, of shared experiences, more or less with, with like, you know, a bunch of people you've never met before on day one that you can draw to and, and laugh about and talk endlessly for hours about. Whereas in school here, like everyone comes from a very different background and there's there's not that like that implicit trust that goes on. So it, that needs to be built over time. And I, I think I've noticed already like the NBA twos are way more tight than the NBA ones. And it's because of those shared experiences. Right. So I just think it's uh, it's going to take time for people to to really come together. In, in ways that uh, you know they're going to build those lasting relationships, you know, for you know, for, from now until um, until not just the end of school, but then and beyond. They give you some pretty great opportunities for it, though. I mean, would you say? I don't want to lead you here, but Stern is making such a huge investment in veterans. Mm-hmm. You know, you went through the the Fertitta Veterans Program in the summer. I did. You know, how do you feel about how Stern is treating veterans? It seems like they're trying to position themselves to be the number one MBA program for veterans in the whole country. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. Well, it's an investment in veterans, and I think they see the value that we bring to the table. It's a maturity. You know, it's a, it's an ability to get things done, lacking n- maybe not all the information you you would um, like to have. You know, the ability to make a decision and, and justify why you made it uh, the way you did. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like in the finance world or I mean, pretty much any, uh, any uh, private sector world, you're going to have to make decisions when you don't, you don't have all the information you'd like to have. And so the ability to, to, to make that call confidently, I think veterans of, of all different types you know, bring that to the table, and there's a lot to be said for that. As we celebrate Veterans Week at NYU Stern, mm-hmm. you know, people, are gonna, people that are civilians or have never been in the military are going to you know, look to engage with veterans. What is something that you'd like people that have never been in the military to understand about the veterans that might be here at NYU Stern? Sure. So, I mean, you definitely don't know uh, what someone's been through. I, I wouldn't recommend asking them any, like, super personal questions. It's not that the curiosity isn't taken as a form of flattery or anything. It's just that there are some, like, events guys won't want to necessarily talk about. I would just um, maybe start, like, small with a veteran. Like, hey, so, like, where did you where did you come from? Oh, like, what got you interested in the military? And if you start with like some very broad questions, like you can kind of gauge whether that person wants to talk more specifically about their experiences. And probably if alcohol is involved, they'd want to speak a little bit more specifically. Right. But uh, not endorsing it, just yeah. saying it that happens. Yeah, right. I, I think trying to draw any parallel to, to a, like any veteran will, will go a long way. Maybe something else in their life has nothing to do with their service was something is something you'll like relate to as well. You know, you both played basketball growing up like, oh, great. And, and again, when you build that like that rapport and that like that that trust with someone, they'll They'll want to eventually open up about other things. I mean, I, I have no doubt that, you know, by the end of my, my second my second year, people are going to know, like, all kinds of, like, funny stories, that uh, things that occurred with me that I told, like, over, you know, over a beer, over a coffee sometime. It just takes time for that stuff to happen. Absolutely. So, you know, you're you're pivoting into the banking world. As you said, a number of vets from, from the Navy SEAL do as well. Mm-hmm. In what way do you think the military will continue to be part of your life? 
So I am pretty active in some of the nonprofits uh, that exist, not, not just here in, in New York, but across the country as well. There's the SEAL Future Fund, there's NSW Family Foundation, the NSW Foundation. So I, I mean, I can't really donate the money right now that I um, would like to. Thank you, New York Housing, for that. But uh, <laughs> I do offer my, like, my support as much as possible. And I do reach out to those organizations and say, hey, if you are getting, you know, inquiries from people that are thinking about pursuing, you know, naval special warfare as a career, like, please have them send me an email. If they're in the area, you know, I'll definitely meet up with them, tell them about my experiences and, and whatnot. And I've, already met, I've already met with a couple people locally here that actually the, the meeting probably didn't go as well as they wanted it to for a variety of reasons. But it's a, it's a good thing and a bad thing that someone who's not in the community um, active anymore can actually have a, a lot of influence over whether someone wants to be in it or not. I think to some degree, like banking's like that as well. Like if you if, sure. you, if you know like an, an MD at one bank, like there's a good chance he knows a lot of people at some of the other banks. You know what I mean? And then it's a that, smaller world than you think. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. that's exactly what I'm saying. So yeah, well, you know, for people that are looking at Veterans Week and thinking about like how they can make a difference, I mean, some of those organizations you just mentioned might be a really good way to get involved. What, what are the names of them again? Uh, the Seal Future Fund. Seal Future Fund and at the NSW Family Foundation. Yeah, I mean, if you're listening to this right now and you think, hey, I want to help some vets, I want to make a difference, maybe maybe give those a Google. Check those out. Yeah. My, well, my parents and my brother and sister ask me what I want for Christmas, my birthday every year. The past like, five years, I've just been like, just donate to these organizations. Oh, Adam, you're a saint. Wow. <laughs> Captain America over here. I'm like, I'd like a new pair of boots, please. Yes, yeah. <laughs> well, you know. Um, my mom's going to give you like an ugly sweater anyway that she's going to knit, and, and I'm never going to wear that. So <laughs> You've got to wear that sweater. Mama loves you. That's why she made it for you. And that's why Christmas morning was invented. <laughs> yes. For ugly you take the, You take the, the picture, you take it off. Make her happy, Adam. You know what I mean? You, you owe your mom everything. She brought you into this world. Put the sweater on. I have six sweaters with ponies on them. Never going to wear one of them. You know what, though? If anybody can wear a pony sweater <laughs> and no one's going to give them a hard time, it's probably you. It's a Navy SEAL, for sure. For sure. For sure. I mean, we, we see what veterans bring to the table all the time. I mean, and, you know, doing things really outside of the typical realm and that's why we celebrate you all in Veterans Week. And I'm wondering, what does Vets Week mean to you? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I wouldn't say I, I, you know, get emotional about it or um, I get reflective. Even it's more, I kind of say that stuff for Memorial Day weekend, uh, to be honest, um, and and to some degree Fourth of July. But I know for sure I'll be sending like text messages to you know all guys in my old platoon and stuff during that week and say like, hey, like I won't say like. Thank you for your service or anything, but I'll just be like, "Hey, what are you up to? How's your how's your newborn? You know, how how's your wife doing? Things like that." Um, it's more like you just reach out and let someone know, like, "Hey, I'm still still thinking of you. You know, still you know wishing you the best." And you know, what's going on in your life? This is what's going on in my life, and you know, those connections are important to have, no matter what community you come from. So reconnecting life after after service. Yeah, yeah. No, I have some some buddies that are in some pretty uh, we'll say. Uh, like precarious positions in their careers where like they can go one way or go to the other. Like some of them are thinking about getting out and they ask me all the time, like, Hey, how about your experience been? Um, would you recommend it for me type of things? So it's, um, I have like a, an influence, I think, uh, on some people that I, I served with that could be potentially very powerful. I mean, it's a huge decision to decide whether to stay in or get out, like for any veteran. Oh, sure. Yeah. 
Throughout Veterans Week, I hope everyone at NYU Stern says thanks to the vets. I hope people come up to you, Adam, and they they uh, you know they shake your hand. I mean, is there anybody else during Veterans Week we should be reaching out that maybe isn't a military member? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I I've uh, spoken to my friends about this a bunch of times um, that are you know in the SEAL teams, and it's kind of like this consensus that we think that. Police officers nowadays have an extremely difficult job. Police officers, much yeah, much more difficult actually than our job because, I mean, even before the whole um, the body cam uh, uh, you know thing happened or the, the wearing of body cameras um, initiative started, you know they're held by so many more rules than we ever have, and there's so many more eyes upon their job, um, you know, um, critiquing everything they do. I think that the PTSD is also like a very well-known um, problem with, with veterans, uh, modern-day veterans, but it, it also exists pretty largely for police officers as well. I mean, they also... They have stressful jobs, too. Of course, and, they, and it, the, the, stress, um, the stress on them and on their families is, is just as much, if not more, I think, as veterans. So I would say, like, thank police officers for what they do, for sure, because they deserve it just as much. Do you, do you put yourself in the same category sometimes as a police officer, at least mentality... Uh, meaning that, you know, when you're going out serving our country as a Navy SEAL, you, you know, you want to protect the country. Like, you want to be, it's like a, they, like the sheepdog mentality, right? Right. Like protect the herd. Do you feel like they're your compatriots in that? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, they they read a lot of the, the same, like, books and go through a lot of the same uh, training that we do, too. They just have a side to their job, like a, a, more, a more human side where they have to learn to handle problems, like, through just talking it out, you know, in much more diplomatic fashions than, than we have to. And it's very difficult to do. And to some degree, they, go, they have a completely different escalation of force than than anyone in the military does. Yeah. And, uh, no, it's, it's super difficult. And they have to go home, like, to their, you know, their family every night, which can definitely be more... Um, a challenging thing for sure. Yeah, that's yeah, you true. sort of have to code switch a bit more in a local job as a police enforcement officer than you do abroad. Sure. Because, you know, you have a right. really intense day and then you get to bond with your team. Here, you know, you sort of, you're eroding your empathy all mm-hmm. day and then you come home and then, you know, life is quote unquote normal. You're supposed and to snap you, back into yeah. like a normal. Yeah, you, you, I can imagine that would be really challenging. You take your badge off like way more often than, than we have to more or less. We have to put it on when we leave to go overseas and then you take it off when you when you come home, right? They have to do it every day continuously. Yeah, that's so really hard, challenging. So hard to do. Well, so thank you to all the police officers and... People that put themselves in harm's way to protect other people, yes. for sure. You know, it, it's important maybe to not forget them on Veterans Week as well. I mean, that includes firefighters. You know, anyone you can think of that, that does that for people. I mean, we're in New York, after all. We don't need to, like, go back through the history of New York, but we got some very brave people in this city sure. that look out for other people. Adam, I tell you what, it was a lot of fun. I had a great time. It was a lot of fun to talk to you about all this stuff. You've told us some cool Navy SEAL stories. You've said some really impactful things. We can't thank you enough for, for being in here. I appreciate you having me. I mean, it was a little difficult to find this place, but uh, once <laughs> once I uh, once I found it with my map and compass, no, yeah. we had a great time. Yeah, use your Navy SEAL skills. Yeah, and for from Frank and myself, and from the greater NYU Stern community, thank you so much for your service. Appreciate that, absolutely. Sir. And hey, it's Veterans Week here, guys. So to see Adam shake his hand, to see a vet, say thank you. Did you have fun, Adam? I had a great time. Well, that's that's really. The I goal. can't wait to come back. Yeah, man. Thanks for being here at NYU Stern. Thank you. See you next week, everybody. Bye, everybody.